supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long, shifting from day into dusk into darkness. Lights on, because in Sydney, we ignite the night. We are go to light up our Sydney sky. You don't want to miss this. Panasonic Air Conditioning Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars unforgettable. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Welcome along. Great to have you with us. V8 Salute Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care products available in Australia and New Zealand at Repco and other auto stores. Great to have you with us this week. We are into Q and A. Can't do the Qs and the As on my own. Will Dale, congratulations. Welcome. You're here. It's time for some A's. Have you got some cues as well? <laughs> uh, I have the cues that our good fans have given us. There's a lot of them. There is always a lot of cues. Uh, some of them are easy A's. Some of them are difficult A's. And some of them are... Entertaining A's? Yeah, they are. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure where I was going yeah. with that, but thank you for assisting. That's very kind of you. One of the themes that has really emerged in the last few days since the round in Townsville, of which there are many, but was the concept re-emerging of round wins and round results. Where did this come from? Did Brock get a trophy for that? Don't think so. Was there prize money? It was was there ah, was there a contract bonus on the line for a round win? Don't know his contract, but you never know. Or something under the new TRC like team uh, entry I structure because there's got to be some sort of driving force for it to be important. For Triple Eight to reference Brock potentially winning the round in the radio discussions with the whole Shane letting past and all when, that stuff. When the whole every point matters for a championship tilt. Yeah, I, I was puzzled mm. by it. But it's actually puzzled a lot of our listeners too because the first three questions for this week's uh, episode is all about round wins. Yes. So uh, Lachlan Kemp starts, let's give him the new ball. We're in the ashes mode at the moment. Uh, what happened to the old overall round podium system? This is a question we've been asked a few times over the years. So basically the old round points or the old round award round win system ended at the end of 2008. So in favour of rewarding the individual race winners. Now, we do see the odd round victory awarded with, for, for instance, the Larry Perkins trophy, where that goes to the effectively the round winner at Albert Park. But generally, Most points for the yeah, weekend. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's been situations where in the COVID era, remember we had those tyre mixed up rounds, the Jack LeBrock Sydney win and, mm. and some of that stuff where you just could not win all three races in yeah. a weekend, no matter how good you were. The tie rules were built in a way that you couldn't. So yeah, this scenario where there was talk of the round win becoming a bit more of an element and a factor there, but that quickly disappeared and died away. I mean, we still log these results because being the top point scorer for a weekend is still an important measure of achievement and success. It's just not an official uh, tracked outcome. And and as you said, they changed it because they felt, and they being supercars, mm. felt that you know there were occasions where winners weren't rewarded as winners because other drivers would win the round having not won a race, which did happen occasionally, but it was not the norm. I mean, yeah. I don't have the stats with me. We could easily generate them from the, the time that it went to what, two races from 1992, three races regularly from 96. Hmm. So if we did the stats from 96 to 2008 on did the round winner win a race at all in that round, It'd be a minimal statistic. It'd be in the single percentage digits. For sure. I feel like was Steve Richards one of those? Yeah, in Perth 06. Yeah. 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 When he had um, done really well in the reverse grid race and been strong in the other races as well. So it's one of those situations where it was kind of, I understood that there was more importance on wanting to recognize winners. Hmm. But it also helps screw the record book somewhat in terms of. <laughs> so, but it has moved the marker of success from 
round wins to race wins. I mean, we celebrated Mark Scaife breaking Peter Brock's round wins record mm. at Eastern Creek back in 2007 on Queen's birthday. So uh, there's situations where now that's kind of out the window, but uh, we, we track round starts, we track round wins, all of that type of stuff, even though it doesn't sort of fall. And there was a time where supercars tried to eradicate the word round mm. because everywhere it was events. Yeah. No, no, there's no rounds. It's an event, but there's races. And in the end, you just that, see most of the time round. That's clearly wayside now. Yeah, yeah. Cl- clearly. I mean, the, it's all a bit silly. But the reality is, as Jeremy Ramsey asked us, you know, why did teams chase the round win when round wins aren't officially recognised in the official stats? They don't even get a reward, which goes back to what you were saying before about there must, there be, must be a reason yeah. why that became an issue and a factor in the discussion. Yeah, teams do not do things on the racetrack by accident. Well, not in this sense anyway, where they try it or for no reason. There's got to be some sort of driving reason as to why it's important because there's no otherwise obvious tangible reason why you would pursue a round win. When there's yeah. no when there's no trophy, when there's oh, yeah. nowhere in the record books, there must be something financial somewhere. There must Surely. be something internally because otherwise yeah. it's, it's not obvious to us and if – uh, it might be something that the team won't admit or, or won't go into. And that's, Which is their they're, own. They're like right. It's their, yeah, own it's their own internal exactly. processes. Exactly, exactly. But it did raise eyebrow of plenty of our listeners and plenty of Supercars fans who were watching the racing on the weekend uh, in Townsville. Uh, Michael Burson, this is the third part of the, the three comments that we've had from our listeners. With the discussion about Brock being the round winner, which, by the way, is the second round in a row that he's topped the points. Mm. Um, Shane Van Gisbergen has not topped the points in a round since Gold Coast last year yeah, right. for those playing along at home. Who are the top five round winners overall, asks Michael, and I think you could answer this. Yes, yeah, so going from five to one, the long-time record holder Peter Brock with 37 round wins. He's which now fifth. was the record that Scaife broke that yes. we mentioned before. Yep. Um, Shane Van Gisbergen is next on 38 round wins. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Scaife is third on 42. Craig Lowndes is second on 52. And Jamie Wincup on 55 is on top of that metric. So Jamie's looking Unofficial good. round wins. Yeah. Oh, well, it's VH Sleuth official round yes, wins. Yes, yeah. So Jamie's untouchable there for a long time. I mean, Van Gisbergen at 38, how many is he behind... Jamie, 17 behind. He's not going to do that this year if he's planning on leaving. Yeah, exactly. And even if he stayed next year, he'd be hard-pressed to be able to knock that over in time. But nevertheless, the race wins count is the one that everyone's kind of uh, more fixated on these days. Uh, Great question follow-up here. Cam Kirby, good friend of yours. You know Cam well. Yes. Uh, In the current supercars era, so we're talking 1997 onwards, what event – this is good – what event had the greatest amount of fines handed out by stewards by dollar value <laughs> and what year had the most fines dished out? So there, well, so we do track fines. As we've talked about on this podcast quite a few times over the years, we do track fines in the A one data results database. Um, it is something that we work on progressively. So all the current ones, of course, get added as we do each race weekend. But, you know, every so often we go back and – we st- come across something from the past and go add it in. We've gotten a fair way through that reckon, sort of era. I reckon our data's pretty good for at least, what, the last 10, 15 years? Yes. So we're pretty solid, but, like, again, not comprehensive. Not mm. comprehensive that I'd love that I could say, that either of us could say definitively this is it. But we did have a bit of a dig and it turned up a few entertaining ones. Oh, I love entertainment. This podcast will is about information, but it is about entertainment as well. If you can blend the two here, this will be great. <laughs> so just to diverse, diverge slightly from what Cam's question was in terms of mo- on a monetary value, what round across main game and Super 2 do you reckon had the most fines levied across the round? I feel this is a trick question. I feel this is where you would naturally think that it was where there was one really big banger fine and a couple of small, tiny ones that add up to a pretty solid overall ah, but number. But this is the total number of fines levied rather oh, than the, the amount actual, of yes, not the, actual the financial amount. amount not the financial but the amount. Yeah. Number of different individual fines. Yeah. How, well, how busy were the stewards? Well, I'm basically. thinking that there has to be one. And by the way, I don't know this. That's why I'm sort of buying time to answer this. Clearly, there must have been a lot of pit lane speeding going on in practice sessions. <laughs> you would be correct ah, about this. Okay. Now that 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 hones in a little, but it doesn't help me with where and when and why and how. So. Well, I'll narrow it down for you. It mm. wasn't in the main game, which is which. I guess you could so kind of expect series. it. was in development oh, series. Oh, naughty boys. Uh, where and when? Uh, 2014 Winton. 
why was everyone so naughty then? You, so you were on on the money. A lot of pit lane speeding fines handed out during practice, um, three of which went to Chris, Chris Pither. He got three. Uh, two in practice one and one in qualifying. <laughs> oh, so no. that cost him oh, a total Crispy. of at three fifty at three fifty a piece. That um, oh, yeah, that that's, added up. That's quickly. a thousand and fifty. Um, that meant he probably attracted. I think he attracted the most fines of all the of all the ones that were handed out. Um, right behind him, though, was Frederick Lestrup. You remember oh, him? I remember Frederick. He drove yeah. the Swedish guy. He drove uh, one of Mark Robertson's cars from memory, one of the Commodores. Mm. So he um, he was fined five thousand dollars, four thousand of which was suspended for going off track during a meeting ride. Oh, he's not the first and not the last to do that. That no. has happened. Uh, a bit over the journey where, yeah, drivers are supposed to be at a certain percentage of pace on those laps and if they come a cropper and end up off the road or having a spin or anything, there is a penalty to be had. Yeah, so. and sometimes the driver will try and pay the fine in coins and that doesn't end well. <laughs> if your name's Tony Quinn. Yes. Um, so all up 11 fines were handed out over the course of that weekend. Well, it doesn't feel like that's a lot. Uh, I think Chris Pither would probably beg to disagree. Well, he got three of 11, so his percentage is not that flash, isn't it? Yes. Okay, that's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. Do we know what year had the most fines dished out in total? Uh, that one we do not. Okay, that's, Again, a, that's a job for another day. That's a job for another day. Again, All in good time. Yes, All exactly. Time. But uh, in terms of um, monetary, of course, that, that number is going to be skewed by the times massive fines were yeah, handed out. Yeah, of course, yep. So, Which is where I was initially thinking when I was thinking from a dollar amount rather than a how many different fines there were in mm. actual numbers. So naturally on that basis, Bathurst 2019 is a very clear contender. Uh, <laughs> right, yep. Um, purely off the back of the, what was it, $150,000 in the end for the Debris penalty? Uh, $150,000, $200,000, I'm not sure what it was. All things considered, but right, that's where the lion's share of that weekend's worth of fines came from was that whole uh, DJR Team Penske situation. So. Indeed, but there was also um, the fine for the valve lift issue with McLaughlin's engines. That was thirty grand, and then the Kostecki Brothers Racing was fined for leaving uh, something in the steering, like a bump stop or, so, or oh, came something out the in track. the rack. Yeah, it came out. It, yeah. it was left in the car when it came out of the pits. Came out. Car crashed at Griffin's Bend, and that w- attracted a fine as well. Um, but then you've also got other weekends where was it Queensland Raceway two thousand three, where John Faulkner Racing was fined three hundred grand for non-appearance. Yeah, which that JFA Proprietary Limited ended up being owned by uh, Keys Wheel later on, and ended up with the dramas with Tiger and the liquidation costs and all of the various elements. So uh, it's one of those situations that. Yeah, is that a fine for that round? Well, yeah, well, it, it sort was. of is. Like, yeah. Um, Had he been it was there, for the what you didn't do at that round versus what you did do at that round. Yes. <laughs> Where, so that- and the reality was, I mean, just harking back to that, had John Faulkner been able to just roll two cars out, drive around for one lap of practice and park them, he would have met the obligations. But from my memory, couldn't have the ECUs that the main championship cars needed. He had two development series Commodores. And didn't turn didn't up. Work. And I think yeah. maybe had thought that he didn't have to through the way that there was, it was various franchise and selling and swapping yeah. and buying and tyre banks and all sorts of stuff. It was just oh, an absolute disaster. Total, yeah. So total the total cluster. fine for that weekend was $300,300. So someone else got three hundred. M Scafe. What, speeding and speeding. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. The old speeding in pit lane gets yeah. a little bit of a run. I've just been past the note. Before we jump on to our next question, our intrepid statistician Shane Rogers has been tuning in while we've been uh, pontificating about some of this. So from 1992 to 2008, so that period that I was talking about from when multi-race rounds came in to when we stopped having round winners, there were 200 rounds in that time. 200? That last round that didn't see... Uh, that saw a round winner not win a race was that Steve Richards 06 Barbagello round. How many of those 200 rounds do you think were were where the round winner didn't win a race? And you would think if you're going to go and change all of history and change all this stuff, you would have looked at the history to go, oh, gee, this is happening a lot. We better change this. This is a big problem. I'm trying to put you off the scent here, by the way. I know. I haven't seen the sheet of paper and I also can't see through the sheet of paper. Um, but I don't think it's I'm, – I'm betting it's not many. Ten. Ten. Ten of 200. Yeah, 5%. Right. 
So and, we changed and everything that, because and, of five percent. And none in that two year period, two season period prior to the change, like 06 being the last one. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, right. so for all of 08, all of 07, and the second half of 06. Yeah. So two and a half seasons, pretty much. So there you go. There's a bit of history. The things these streets have seen, like legends, half man, half machine, who head up north to go down in history. But here in the Ville, nothing comes for free. Because here, there's no should. These streets reveal what's really under the hood. If these streets could talk, they wouldn't. They'd roar. They've seen the unforgettable, and they just want more. NTI Townsville 500. Book now at Ticketek. Let's move on. Adam Blackman, how many, oh boy, how many controlled Dunlop tyres have been used since they took over as the control supplier, which was 2002? Secondly, which chassis used the most and least controlled tyres? Adam, you are crazy. <laughs> now, we de- now we definitely don't track um, tyre use. There's a line, Adam, yeah. there's a line. There's a line, but we've got something for you. Yes, yeah, so if you cast your mind back to 2018, uh, Dunlop uh, made a bit of a to-do around the 250th 250,000th control tyre that they'd produced for the category. That was fitted to the David Reynolds, Luke Yulden, um, Erebus Motorsport Commodore. That was the Chickadee car, was the Chickadee yeah. car that weekend. Um, and before you ask, no, don't know when it was fitted to the car, what session, whether <laughs> what it ran in the race or qualifying. Which I'm sure go. the team would know. Um, they do track that sort of thing. Well, they have to, um, yeah. Yes. Um, and if you add up all the tyre allocations since then, they're probably zeroing in on the 300,000th tyre. Probably a this question year or like okay. early next year. Kevin Fitzsimmons from Dunlop might yeah. be the man to. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the surprise. If no, they're no, planning no. It. But I reckon that's that milestone's coming up at some point in the next twelve months. Don't be too shocked, Adam, if you see a three hundred thousand cake somewhere yes. at some stage. It's a <laughs> lot of candles, trouble fitting that to the whip. Yeah, that's that's, that's a, a bit wild. That's a bit wild. What's next? Where are we at? Oh, page two. Mick Jeffrey. Will the second Enduro, which this year is Sandown and who knows where in the future, those are mixed words, revert to sprint for the grid qualifying format used in the Phillip Island 500 era in the name of giving Enduro co-drivers more seat time? No, it's a top 10 shootout at Sandown for Mm. the 500 this year and long may it continue in my humble opinion. Those sprint for the grids and the quali races or whatever you want to call them, just cause more drama, more grief, more record-keeping headaches, more what's a win that's not a win, what's a pole that's not a pole, what's a best race result that's not a best result. It's a podium, but it's not a podium. It's a top three. Uh, but they were seriously. entertaining ones, They though. were entertaining on the track, though, yeah. more often than not. They, However, got the, they got the formula roughly right by through the sand-down years when they were doing yeah, them. Yeah, where but they the, – yeah. yeah. I mean, the, just Also, the most exciting one was the year it rained halfway through a co-driver race. That was quite entertaining. But in the first year, what was that, uh, 20, well, what year did they do it for the first time? 2010? 2008, the Phillip Island 500 started. Yeah. Was it, they started doing it from the start? I reckon they might have, or it would have been close to. Oh, I just remember that there was always a scenario because it started where you could pick whichever driver you wanted to drive either of the two races and you could pick which of your drivers took the compulsory pit stop. It was 2008, by yeah, the way. Yeah, okay, so they did it from the start down there. It was a cluster. So we would, because I was in the TV broadcast at the time, seriously, we would go off air Saturday and we had all the spreadsheets in the world, but to tell you who's on pole for the next for, for the big race the next day was an effort. Like it was <laughs> so ridiculous. If you can't just – and that's where you're right. They got the formula right later on mm. where at Sandown, the co-driver did the first race, the main driver started where the co-driver finished and did 20 laps and where the cars crossed the line in that order – was the grid for the Sunday race. Job they, done. They got there eventually with yes. something that was a logical thing to be able to easily follow. But, uh, Mick, top 10 shootout for Sandown this year. Who knows where the Enduro goes in the future. Hopefully it's there again next year, which they sort of sound like they're making all the noise as it is because that will be the 50th anniversary race from 64 with the first Sandown six hours. So, uh, yeah, uh, sprint for the grid, qualifying races, call them what you will. Just as a stats man, as a history guy, <laughs> Just stuffed everything up, made it really hard. and uh, But it made Saturday at the race weekend interesting. It, it did, it did, but it just took many years for it to flesh out to get it to the right format in the end. Oh, was it points? Was it not points? Should we give oh, points? Oh, geez. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Next question is from Jason Horachik. What do you think of the Triple Eight team orders from the Sunday race? Shane Van Gisbergen certainly didn't appear to agree with them. I presume this is a Townsville question, by the way. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think the other thing that should be pointed out here is that Shane, although he blew up 
and was sort of running some inter-race uh, <laughs> negotiations <laughs> and then was clearly frustrated and upset in the aftermath, he did post on social media Sunday night in regards to, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but that he understands now where the team was coming from, accepts it, you know, we're a team, etc. So he put out something publicly that was of the view that he wasn't bluing and carrying on the blue. But uh, to point out, to, to really go back to Jason's question, I mean, this is not a, I mean, it's one of those things, I wouldn't categorise it as a team order. Mm. A team order in my mind is, Driver A, you must stand aside for driver B. But this is one of those ones where, and this has happened regularly in supercars, where a teammate will say, let me buy teammate B, Mm. let me have a crack at the car in front. If I don't get them in time or by the end of the race or in the next 10 laps or whatever it is, I'll give it back. That's a common thing. That's happened a lot. And sometimes that negotiation doesn't happen from the driver. It happens between the engineers in the pits. Which which we don't have the radios in the broadcast for that stuff to be able to hear it. Yeah. So we can only hear. Okay. Phillip Island 2018 is another example of this. Also with Triple Eight where a deal was done in the pits that allowed um, Craig Lowndes past Shane Van Gisbergen to try and run down Rick Kelly for third place. Now- Craig was told half the deal. He was told Shane would let him past to go after Rick and then a lap or so later was told, oh, yeah, by the way. There's a caveat on that. You don't get him, you've got to let him back through. So, again, it it happens. It's it's reasonable. It's a way of the team, again, not issuing an order because they want their drivers to finish a certain way. It's an order. It's a kind of suggestion to help their team achieve a better position. Yeah, and I think when you infer team orders, it goes along the line of trying to determine an outcome yeah. or change the natural outcome. Whereas yeah. with this situation, you're trying to advance your team's position mm. at the, to not be at the detriment of your team's position. Yeah, Have the chance to go and chase the car in front. If you get past that car... Press on, no problem. And if you can't, it's rever- it's reverting back to what the natural outcome would have correct, been. Correct, correct. So I, I think when it's labelled team orders, I, I don't see it that way. I, I mean, if if it was Brock, um, you must step aside and let Shane pass or yeah. driver A, you must do this or driver B, you must do that, then that's a team order for sure. And, and look, teams can, you know, we've seen it before with um, – teams parking up cars in the pits and various other things to try to swap an order around without making it really obvious and clear that that Mm. has and and does happen, albeit not on a very regular basis. But I didn't really have a problem with the whole way it all played out. Clearly, when the communication doesn't get done quite right behind the scenes and the drivers aren't fully in the loop, then that's when the the grumbling happens. And it was was slightly convoluted with the whole Brock wouldn't have burnt his tyres up chasing the next position if he, yeah, anyway. There are a lot of different elements to it. True. Tony Ryan, he asks, we seem to be entering a new young gun era with Feeney, Kostecki and Brown. Have Mostert and Waters missed their career window of opportunity to win a championship? Interesting question. It is an interesting question. I mean, ultimately with Cam Waters, if the scenario is wet, that he's potentially looking to head overseas at some point. He's regularly referenced recently that he wouldn't mind having a crack at NASCAR, and as we can see, as we've seen with Shane Van Gisbergen, that could potentially lead to a full-time deal. Um, Cam obviously has potentially less time to get the job done than Chaz does, but Chaz has a lot of years on his side. He's not that he's not that old, mm. like, and he is in with a very good team. So I think it's a harsh call to suggest that maybe Chaz, their championship window has closed. Yeah, I'm, I tend to, to agree. I understand what Tony's saying, though. Mm. So, I mean, the thing is, have they been in cars previously that could have won the championship? They've come close, but they haven't won or they haven't been taking it to the last race to the death type situation. So, yeah, yeah. Waters has been runner-up a couple of times. Obviously, though, you know, runner-up last year was Shane first light years, then yeah, second. Daylight seconds. So yeah. it, was, it was one of those scenarios. But it's an interesting call. I do agree. It feels like we're entering a new young gun era where the emerging 20-somethings are starting to deliver results. They're driving mm. in top-line teams. Erebus have stepped it up this year. It's not to say that Chaz or Cam or any of those more established drivers 
are suddenly no good or that their decisions sure. of where they're driving are, are, are not sound. But it's definitely – we've definitely got that point with that new young gun era has come through and we've had that in waves over the years. We had a you know, we had a period what where Mark Winterbottom, Will Davison, Jamie Winkup, Rick Kelly were all young and on the way through and now, you know, they're either not driving or they're in their 40s. It's not to say that they're not competitive but it is a new era now with these young guns emerging and not just emerging but scoring results, winning regularly, standing on the podium regularly and we had that stat, didn't we, earlier in the year with those three guys, Brock, Brody, and Will, mm. was the youngest ever podium in the history of the championship. So that says a lot. if that doesn't say that that's a new young gun era and they've been on the podium together since then, then I'm not quite sure what does. Yes. Next question, Matthew Coombs. Will the sport actually be poorer if Shane Van Gisbergen leaves? I think we're over his moods anyway. That's, that is. I don't think you can say it'd be poorer. No. Uh, uh, look, the sport is always bigger than the individual, mm. surely. But I feel it's a bit of a rough. I, get, I understand what Matthew's saying. SVG doesn't really – he looked a different guy in America than what he does look in Australia this year. Totally. Fair? Yep. Totally. Now, there's got to be a reason for that. Is he over supercars? Does he not enjoy the cars? Does he not enjoy dealing with the media? We know that he's not a big fan of that. That's not a, that's not a secret. But, but he's also been dealing with – Essentially, at the same party for what? Best part Since of twenty years. Yeah, he's changed. Oh, he's grown a lot as a person. He's changed a lot as a person. It's perfectly understandable. He'd be excited about a new challenge. Excited about a completely different culture, a completely different racing scene. Which I get the impression that before he did the NASCAR thing, he was keen to go and have a go, mm. but he wasn't wired to the whole move Let's your life go. overseas and go and completely chase this. But you got the sense that oh, boy, it's a pretty hard thing to not have a crack at because he's never going to get a better opportunity to have his stocks as high as they are. Totally. To go and do something over there, albeit with one race under your belt. So will the sport be poorer if he leaves? Yes. He's one of the best drivers in the world. His resume, his diversity of abilities, rallying, GT racing. I mean, people forget he won the 12-hour. He won in the Blancpain Endurance Series. He was, you know, WRC2, you know, all the stuff he's done over the journey, let alone what he's done in a supercar. When a driver with that resume departs your championship, yeah, you're poorer. Of course you Mm. are. But there's also another benefit to it in that it opens up a vacuum for someone else to step in and then someone to step into their shoes and it gives us another flag bearer for Australasian motorsport and supercars Mm. on the world stage as – when Ambrose went, people wanted to see how he went. When McLaughlin went, we wanted to see how he goes. We wanted him to go well. I mean, people would have been rooting for Van Gisbergen, who normally don't on that Monday morning I watching Chicago. I would think so, absolutely. Sure. So when you look at it all that way, the sport will be poorer if he leaves. Having said that, the sport moves on, someone else will step up, someone else will start winning races, someone else will challenge for the championship. This thing never stops. You know, Whether it was Brock retiring or Johnson retiring or Scaife retiring, it always moves on and the sport's always poorer when a, leg- when a champion, a legend, a future Hall of Famer, which he clearly is, uh, moves on. But are we over his moods? That's Matthew's point of view, I reckon. And I think some of it's, some of it's justified too. But you can see – I said this to someone the other day. I see a bit of Van Gisbergen this year in how Ambrose was in 05. That's a fair point. Just the, the, the interactions with the media – it felt like the world was kind of starting to get a bit against him. There were some of those public spats with Murph. Um, of course, the decision, the difference was, though, that Marcus had made the call early in 05. Before, before the season Lappin. started, exactly. wasn't it? The it Grand was Prix announced at the Grand Prix, yeah. yeah. That he was off and he was going to go and do this, whereas a little bit different in the Shane scenario. But I just can't help but feel, having been in the championship back then, I'm seeing and feeling similar, not same, but similar elements to how Marcus was looking and feeling then as to how Shane's looking and feeling now. It's funny. Like we think about how um, we always talk about we want to see more personalities in in the field, more personality brought out by the drivers. And we've got a driver who's occasionally a bit prickly, occasionally a bit grumpy, and apparently we don't want to see that. Yeah. You you want to have your cake and you want to eat it too. And, of course, some of these times these drivers have been – have 
put themselves out there, sit, open up on some things and got whacked. Yeah. And they go, well, why would I bother doing that in the future? So Shane in particular, if we just look back a few a few months ago to the start of the yeah, season. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So, um, th- And I think that's an even bigger, broader issue for the category and the sport, really. Mm. But that's a whole other chat for a, a whole other day. Um, what's next? Where are we going here? I've lost my way on this page. What's Clive, next? Ga- Clive Garner's question is next. He'd like to know if the number two VL Group A Commodore sponsored by Bob Jane still exists. Now, I presume Clive's talking about the first roadways VL that Alan Grice raced in the middle of the 1987 season that actually started its life as a white, blue and yellow liveried car mm, before right. copping the Bob Jane Sebring Orange halfway through the year. Um, no, that car does no longer exist. It became, actually, it became an Oscar mm. after Group A Touring Car Racing when uh, Oscar Racing was getting up and going. So there's quite a lot of Commodores that got converted out of Production cars, that Commodore Classic series, remember yeah, that? Like Malrose's car. Yep. yep. Um, and this was one of them because, of course, Roadways, Les Small ran Grice's Group A car, this car, and then was running cars at the Dome. And I think Elf Grant drove that car at some stage too. Yeah, Elf Grant, Steve Harrington had and, a few runs in it. I'm not sure if Grice drove it somewhere along the line, but uh, it later became a sportsman, which was kind of the feeder, you know, the cars got passed down from Oscar to sportsman, no different to... Supercars to Super Two to Super Three, same scenario. Um, unfortunately, that car got written off in a in a fatal crash during mm. a private test day um, out at the Thunderdome. In, I think it was about nineteen ninety five. From yeah, early so ninety five. Unfortunately, a um, a sad ending for that car. And uh, we do get asked about it a bit because a lot of people remember that livery and and Gricey taking it up to the turbos yes. uh, at Bathurst in, in eighty seven with Win Percy and the Green uh, Means Go winning. I was going to say in the infamous little uh, race cam interaction where. Uh, Winston was a little confused as to whether to go. I'm going. Yes. <laughs> Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next? last forever. The Stanley Cup final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Uh, Liam Baker, what retro liveries do you think we might see at Bathurst this year? Now, I hadn't thought about this until Liam asked the question with this year being the 60th anniversary race. Um, And the fact that you think back to the last time we had a major anniversary celebration at Bathurst, it was the 50 years celebration race in 2012, and I had to read that out because I get that wrong every but single you didn't time. You got it wrong then. You got it right. It was celebrating 50 years. It was the 50th year, but it wasn't the 50th anniversary. No. This year is the 60th anniversary, 63 to 23. So yes. you sort it. You're sweet. Yeah. Um, so 12 was the year that there was the Craig Lowndes Retro HDT car. That's the one. True Blue Overnight rewrapped on the Norton car. Yes. Uh, FPR with its Moffat liveries. Yep. There's a couple of other. Oh, 50, 52D. Oh, yeah, the Reynolds car. Yeah. How good was that? Hand-painted. Um, it was, actually. <laughs> a little aside to that. So the 52D of the Dave Reynolds Dean Canto car, as you said, hand-painted, that car lives on its back in that livery with Damien and Charlie Grimer up in Sydney. You can read all about it in our Tickford book that we're putting together on the history of all the FPR Pro Drive and Tickford cars. It's available to pre-order now, by the way. So jump on the V8 Sleuth Superstore to make sure you don't miss out on a copy because that will be a, a limited collector's edition. And one of the things was I asked him about that livery because it's back in 52D, but he said what they ended up doing was they actually painted the car but they've done decals, decals, depending on which school you're from, over the top of it. So it's not actually hand-painted like it was originally. But if you looked at photos, you could probably not really count the difference too much. And really, if you're going to run the car uh, rather than just leaving it as a display piece, you can't, that kind of makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. But I haven't heard yet of any particular main game teams running special liveries for the Enduros, Sandown and or Bathurst. Um, and, look, there's some of them that if I did – I wouldn't be able to say, but I can tell you there's none that I have heard of that I am keeping under my hat because um, for various reasons, obviously there's embargoes. We work with a lot of different teams to assist them with some of these projects and we also do the official program for the uh, endurance mm. races for supercars this year. So we get asked a lot, Repco Bathurst 1000 official program will go on pre-order sale 
somewhere in the next month or two. So um, you'll be able to make sure that you don't miss out on a copy of that one. But I'd expect someone will do something among the grid somewhere. Surely, but surely. I, my gut tells me it won't be a big amount of them like in 2012. Which, in in a way, I think that's nice that that it's that the anniversary race. If you look at photos of it, it's actually representative of the era. Like mm. the fifty was a big milestone, so I get the retro nature of that. But I don't know. I, I'd be more than happy to see the grid mostly with regular liveries. Would you like to see a Kevin Bartlett spec Camaro roll out somewhere? It's the wrong channel, isn't it? Well, I don't know yeah, where that's, that's going to fly it, on. It there. didn't stop them back in the day. They did it. The nine sport Camaro on a Channel Seven broadcast. Once, but that was why Kerry Packard did it to um, yeah, a bit yeah. of um, what was it guerrilla marketing <laughs> on Channel Seven's big day. Yeah, well, it, it um, he got his money's worth in 1982. Yeah, he got yeah. plenty of attention, and in '81, and in '80. Yeah. I'm going to punch him in the mouth when the race is over. Um, if you don't know that line, go and Google. Uh, it would be cool though to celebrate some of the uh, anniversaries. That's true. 03, Lap of the Gods. Lap of the Gods. 93, Castrol, Larry Perkins. I know they've changed their logo recently, so that sort of that's a bit awkward. That's makes it a little tricky. Um, 83, Dick in the Trees. Yeah. Well, uh, that don't don't been, go in the trees, no, yeah. but do the livery. Sure. No, that one has been done before. That was done in 2013. And that's Mostert, right. Chaz unfortunately <laughs> crashed as well. So, yeah, I would expect a couple, but Liam, um, not quite sure. We'll wait and see. Wait and see. Braden Mackay, do you think that Gen 3 will even go the distance at Bathurst? Steering racks and et cetera can't seem to last a race reliably. The racks in Gen 2 were custom made by the teams and rated for the task, and even they fell apart regularly at the mountain. Interesting question. Uh, they'll go the distance, definitely. Yes. But the the element is here, we might get a little bit more of an old school Bathurst 1000 here this year where, I mean, the cars have become so bulletproof for so long hmm. that really if, if there was retirements from the race, it was usually crashes or yeah. spins or uh, damage from hitting walls or other cars or stuff. But mechanical slash technical failures were few and far between. Mm. I don't have the stats with me, but I'm sure that they would back me up. But when you've changed so much from year to year, I mean, the only thing that's the same here is the transaxle. Yes. Really. So engines, different. Yep, they've done a lot of testing, lots of dyno, lots of in-car, in at-track testing. But And clearly steering in Townsville was uh, one that poked its head up quite a bit, which wasn't a new issue. There have been some of those issues this year, but because of the nature of that track, pounding those curbs to mm. to make lap time, <laughs> it's going to happen. So I think they'll last the distance, but I think we might see one of those. There'll be some compromises potentially for some teams just looking at some of the areas of the cars and the possibilities to – and I don't think that's a bad thing. No, it's, it's not, a bad thing. It adds a not, few variables. It's not all that long ago where teams would have to look at how the cars perform during practice and then tell their drivers to drive accordingly in the race to either avoid curbs, avoid th doing this, that or the other to ensure that the car was strong throughout the entire race distance. Yeah, and so many people, don't they, hark back to, oh, give us back the good old days with 60 cars and this and that and all those elements. Well, this is Here's one, one of those elements. So <laughs> yes. careful what you wish for. Uh, <laughs> but uh, look, I think that they'll they'll go the distance. But clearly, when you've got so many changes and so many new elements, there's some teething problems. There's some problems. There's some issues, and they're doing their best to, to get it all sorted. So and, that's and, and don't is. forget, we'll have a 500k race immediately beforehand, which to, is also good too. Yes, over some rather big curbs at Sandown. You could drive around them, but you'll just be a bit slow. Yes. So, yeah. Next question from Michael Gray. Are you having a night event before this year's Sandown? I reckon Larry and Jack Perkins would be great guests. Uh, I reckon they would be too. Uh, we are planning and having the Pipeworks a night um, on the Wednesday night of this year's Sandown 500 uh, at a team's workshop that will help celebrate a special matter with the said well, well. team. Mm. There you go. And it's not the Perkins, by the way. It's not the Perkins. But I do agree. They would be great guests. But, um, yes, there are plans at play for a September V8 Sleuth open night, uh, just as we already have locked in one. We're going on tour. We're going to Ballarat hey. August 3. Crompo and I uh, at the Regent Cinema in Lydiard Street North, I think it is, North. Lydiard Street. Just a couple of Ballarat boys heading home. I know. It's been a while. I've been home for a while, to be to be honest with you. But uh, we're going to be there um in one of the theatres, anyone who came to our uh, night at Chadston uh, in the theatre, in the cinema there with Crompo 2019, it was a great night 
uh, comfy seats, food and beverage available to buy, plenty of sleuth products to both buy and win as door prizes. Uh, tickets are available now via the Eventbrite website, but we'll put the link in the show notes for this episode so you can find it. Love to see you there as we take the V8 Sleuth Open Nights on the road to country Victoria. It is Thursday, August 3, so not too far away. No, it's not. Uh, next question from Tony Maxwell. I liked this one. This one actually came through to us um, via private message on social media. What is the largest sequence of cars that have finished a round of the Touring Car Championship, Supercars, other races you have data access to, where car one finished first, car two finished second, car three finished third, etc. So finished outst- in numerical order. It's an outstandingly nerdy numbered question, and that's why I love it. It's amazing, isn't it? And I don't even have... I mean, I don't have the answer in front of me. I'm hoping you do, but... I do. The fascinating thing is Tony's answered his own question. So I'm guessing that the largest sequence is three. Correct. Because he mentioned three. Car one finished first, car two finished second, car three finished third. Can I have a try at this? You can have a dip. Main game. Main game. Supercar era, i.e. 97 onwards. Keep going. Keep going backwards. Before. Yep. It's okay. I can give you a clue. I'm feeling like it's old days. I'm it's feeling, happened twice. Oh, geez. Oh, that's not what I was hoping for. So I'm thinking is this one of the years when the numbers on cars generally change between rounds? No. Oh, okay. That's really not helping. I, I'm going to guess it's Moffat and Bond and John Harvey 77 Sandown. That's the first instance. Oh, well really? Yep, that is the one. Car one, one, car two, second, John Harvey, car three, third. Yes. Oh, go Noonan. Well played. Okay. Um, I can verify he does not have this in no, front I of him either. I don't have a bit of paper. I just thought, well, one and two, Moffat and Bond seriously would have run one, two in lots of races in 77. Yes. Was there one in the top of my head that was number three and that what that is what came to mind. Spot on. Uh, so the other one back in the similar-ish era? Yes. Same season? Yes. Same three? Same three. Where at? Adelaide International 250. Right, when the Enduros were part of the championship that yes. year. Yes. Moffat Bond Hart. Great question. It's That's a, a good great one, isn't it? question. I really like that question. Really like it. Because if you, if you go back through, like, there'd be, there are a lot of one, two finishes. Um, but to get the third leg, that's... Exactly. That's the hard part. <laughs> you think of the years that that was with Lanceville Smash Repairs and then Tasman. Well, that then- was what first came into my brain. Mm. I was thinking Scaife and Richards 1 and 2, Nissans or Commodores or something, but it was always Doesn't quite work, yeah. 3 was Trevor or Steve and that wasn't a scenario. So, wow, cool question. Now, in terms of grids... Oh, oh I did know. Our data guru, grids, Shane yeah, Rogers, I- also looked this up. He went the extra mile for this question. That's what he does. Yeah. Um, there were no one, two, three grids. Really? Nope. Nothing in championship history. Wow. And we're not going to get it for a while because Van Gisbergen won't run number one. This is true. And so then we're relying on Percat and Hazelwood. Yeah. And whoever is in number one somewhere in the future. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, however, oh, it, hang on, has ha- it has happened at Bathurst because if you go back far enough in great race history – uh, the grids were set by <laughs> yes. the car's numerical order because of the way the entry lists were formed and the classes were set, so fastest and biggest capacity cars up the front with the lowest race numbers. So car one was first, car second, car two was second and so on and so on. Yes. Doesn't really count, does it? Doesn't really count. It's, it's a great question. Thank oh, yeah. you, Tony. That's a ripper. And there is an additional thing that oh, Shane has given us. Right. So Queensland Raceway Race 3 in 2000 had five cars finish in the same position as their car number. Lowndes and Scaife. Yes. I think you're going to battle with the other three. Oh, I'm Two of them we're are down possible. the back somewhere. I think we're down the back, are we? Privateer mm, land? One is. Danny Osborne, 22. Are you close? It was Brett Peters behind Brett the wheel Peters that day, but yes. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I don't have a sheet here. He does either. not. He does not. Uh, so this is 2000, the sprint round, isn't it? Yes. Did Larry finish 11th? He did. Is this the one where he nearly wiped out Mike Emery going across the finish line? Earlier that day, That was earlier that day. How many have I got? Four. You've got four so far. Out of how many? Five. Oh, shit, really? Yep. I'll give you a hint. Larko finished on the podium for that round, so it's probably not him. No, I do remember that. Is is that a hint on who it was, though? 
That's a hint on who it wasn't. Oh, okay. I'm not going to make this easy. You've only taken like, one out of about 30 other cars, but uh, I, I don't want to let the listeners have to sit around and listen to me go, uh, uh, So you want to know? Uh, you want to be? Yeah, go on, give all it right. to me. Tony Longhurst finished ninth in car nine. All right. Okay. Nice. Nice. Well, I'll take you that question and I'll give you a Danny Knight question because, this, well, actually, this comes from Danny's 10-year-old son. Have supercars ever finished in the same order they started it in? He said it's unlikely, but what's the closest maybe back to the top 10? So after having let the database recover from the previous <laughs> inquiry. <laughs> the smoke pouring off the keyboard. Yeah. Um, it The record is places first through sixth finishing in the same order they started. And that's happened a couple of times in championship history. Well, three times in championship history. Most recently, Oren Park Race 2, 1996. Then prior to that, Sandown 1985. And the one that really surprised me, Lakeside 1981. Oh, the championship deciding race. Championship deciding race. So it it doesn't shock me, though, that they're generally from back in the day because Mm. fields were less, cars, the competitive levels were nowhere near what we have now. The races were shorter. There was less, well, there were no compulsory pit stops. There was no other elements to to it all. But... um, but that's not to say that there hasn't been one at a supercar race that's non-championship Correct. along these lines. The most recent non-championship round for supercars at Albert Park in 2017 where in race three, positions one through seven finished where they qualified. So that would have been the Saturday race. Yes, Usually the last Saturday one, race. Two on Thursday, or well, one Thursday, one Friday, one Saturday, one Sunday. Something no, like that. No, it was two on yeah. Friday in those days. Or two on Saturday and a Sunday. Yeah. Oh, anyway, whatever way. it was. Yeah. Whatever it was. That's a good. That's another great question. Thank you, Danny. Well, actually, no. Thank you, Danny, for passing on your son's question. We didn't get Danny's son's name, but uh, uh, Knight Junior, well bowled. Yes. Good question. Good question. Jordan Cook. The Sunday winner has always been the winner of the Clipsal 500, so why is Garth Tanner the 2000 winner and not Mark Scaife? Sure, that's a question Mark Scaife asks as well. I've had it from him plenty of times. (laughs) He wasn't that thrilled when this all got rejiggled. Shall I? Yes, go right ahead. So Jordan, Garth Tanner is the winner of the 2000 Clipsal 500. Gary Rogers Motorsport have the gold winner's laurel wreath. I think it's not as gold these days. Those things tend to fade over time. But in the SUP regs for that year's race, and the supplementary regulations are the official, like, they're the rules of that event. You know, yes. there's the operations uh, manual that supercars, used to be a Vesco, have that pretty much runs the sport. Uh, then obviously there's the um, CAMS or Motorsport Australia um, rule book. But the supplementary regulations are the regulations of that event. Yeah, and, and they generally trump whatever's in the operations manual if there's a clash. They, they all work hand in hand, but yeah. yes, they are the, the real standout. So the element was there that in the subregs that year, in the wake of the weirdness of the first year's Adelaide 500, where it was one race spread over two days, but then after a while they went, oh, crap, some of the big names are out Saturday night. <laughs> yes. We better put them back in the race. Uh, so you had this really weird scenario of it was – it's actually one race, but it took 24 hours to complete or whatever it was. It was written in the subregs for 2000 that the winner of the Clipsal 500 round was the driver who had the most points. Mm. It was in the paperwork for that round. Then in the aftermath for following years, it was that the driver who won the Sunday race was deemed the round winner, regardless of how many points they had or hadn't earned across the, to- the course of the weekend. So Scaife is famously in the vision for winning the Sunday race in one of his best drives yeah. from the back of the grid with a drive-through penalty through the rain to win the race. And, yes, he's on the podium, he gets the champagne, he gets a winner's laurel, but in the official results – and in this – because for a long time it was deemed that Scaife had won that round in statistics, mm. but – when I actually went yeah. through the paperwork, we had to actually rejiggle that a bit because by the letter of the law and the paperwork, Garth Tander was the round winner. He had the most points. It said so in the sub regs, so that's how it was followed. And I'm sure Mark's still to this day not thrilled uh, with that, but it's just fact. It's yeah. just fact. Sure, so. Garth would love pointing that out to him <laughs> at any available opportunity. <laughs> Got a funny feeling he does, yeah, yeah. Last question, Harry Box. Talking with mates about how supercars ran double weekends at the same location during COVID when a casual watcher asked if a track has ever been run in reverse. Pretty sure this has never happened, but if there was one track you would do in reverse, which would it be? <laughs> well, well, no, a track's not been run reverse in supercars. Uh, yeah, because, not in championship history. No, because the tracks are licensed and 
passed off and ticked for safety by the FIA. So mm. you can't just decide to swap it and run it the other way. Of course, think about the alignment of walls, of sand traps, of uh, recovery vehicles, of pit yes. entry and exit and all those different elements that are affected. But you did a story a while back on our website about reverse track racing. It has happened before. It has happened and has happened in Australia. Uh, Oran Park Short Circuit is actually one of the is the one that I was thinking of when I read Harry's question. In the 80s and I think even in the late 70s I think they might have done it in the 70s well. too. Yeah. yeah, they'd run the short circuit in reverse. So there's photos and vision out there of Mark Scaife in the early days of his Ford laser racing career um, racing the wrong way around Oran Park but legitimately doing so. <laughs> <laughs> with um, other drivers going the same drivers, way. Yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, it has happened. It has, has happened. happened. The other one that I didn't know until working on the Jim Richards book is that Pukekohe ran a single meeting in the 60s in the reverse direction. I'm guessing he won at it? He raced at it. Oh, but okay. it, Because, yeah, Jim's raced everything at Pukekohe. He's even raced yeah. a tractor. Um, apparently it was at the suggestion of Jim Clark who thought it might be a challenging, more challenging way of doing it. <laughs> Well, you could do different things in the 60s, couldn't you? You really could. It's very much a, a different time. Uh, thank you, everybody, who's sending our uh, questions for our Q&A episode of the V8 Salute podcast, uh, polished by Bowden's, uh, Bowden's own premium car care. Uh, we, next week, are going to go into our pre-track round mode. So Sydney Motorsport Park hosts the next round of supercars, the Borough Pairs, Sydney Super Night at the end of the month. So we are going to delve into all things SMP, Eastern Creek. We will use that term quite a bit. Um, there's a lot to unpack from that round and that track from over the journey. So we'll do a bit of that next week. Repco Supercars Weekly this week will be Thursday, not Friday. So tomorrow, um, for those who are listening to this pod as it drops. Uh, and of course, don't forget, every Tuesday, Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. Stefan and ABL with the latest and greatest of international and local news, insight and opinion. They are the best in the business and they have the awards that prove it. Uh, we'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, we will chat to you again next week on another edition of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, polished by Bowden's own premium car care. Supercars in Sydney, racing all weekend long. Panasonic Air Conditioning, Sydney Super Night, 19 to 21 July. Now a ticket app. Supercars, unforgettable. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au.